You have to do it again and again and again. You can't give up. And that's bravery. I am unwilling to give up. That I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so excited to have my next guest, uh, Reshma Sajani, who is a friend of mine and also a fellow participant in, is that what you call it, on the list? <laughs> member, <laughs> member <laughs> participant, exactly. Uh, I've talked about the list before, and she's also the founder of Girls Who Code and Marshall Plan for Moms. We've been hearing a lot about that lately. And I'm like, Mark, I'm like, Rushman, you've got to come on and talk a little bit more about that. So I'm so excited to have her here today. Uh, Rushma has spent more than a decade working to close the gender gap in the tech sector through the company she founded, Girls Who Code. And she's also an author. And the book is called, it's a best-selling book um, called Brave Not Perfect. It was such a good book. And she's also did an incredible TED Talk. If you have not heard her TED Talk, it's had over 5 million views globally and uh, is really, really special. So she's super busy. Uh, She's also a mom, has got a couple of young little kids running around and she made time for us, uh, which is super, super great. Um, She's a, she worked as a lawyer for over a decade before shifting gears to become the first Indian American woman to run for Congress. And after her campaign finished up, Reshma founded Girls Who Code. And just this past year, as I mentioned, uh, she started the Marshall Plan for Moms. So I can't wait to have you all meet Reshma and hear a little bit more about how inspiring she is and all the great work she's doing. So welcome, Reshma. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Kara. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more. I mean, I gave some background, but let's talk a little bit more about your experience growing up. I mean, who was little Rushma and how did you, I mean, did you ever think that you were going to be bulldozing and starting a huge initiative in the tech world as well as for moms? I mean, who, like, who were you? Well, I'm, so my parents came here as refugees. Um, so I was always an activist. I led my first march when I was 13 years old. You know, there's something about growing up and recognizing that like two generations of my family were uprooted from their home, you know, by a crazy dictator. And that kind of happened because the Indian population in Uganda just wasn't embedded in the political process. Hmm. You know, they weren't engaged. And so you know, my parents came here with like, you know, no money. They changed their name from like, my dad changed his name from Mukun to Mike. Uh, even though they were both trained engineers, my dad worked as a machinist in a plant. My mother sold cosmetics. So, you know, they came here and uprooted their entire life t- and to be here. And, and so for me, I think 
I was always moved by that struggle. And I always knew that I was going to do something, you know, to make the world a better place. I think what I've learned in my career is like all the twists and turns that you fit, you take to figure out like what exactly that something is. Absolutely. So, so you, you weren't in India, you weren't born in yeah, India. No, I was, I was born, I was born here in Chicago, Illinois. In Chicago. Is that where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up, I went to like Schaumburg High School, University of Illinois, Urbana, you know, grew up in the eighties. We were one of the only, you know, brown families in our neighborhood. I would, you know, my mom would like get made fun of for wearing her sari and her bindi at the local Kmart. You know, I grew up wishing that my mother called, my mother named me Rachel instead of Reshma. Like I, I, it was, it was, you know, 1980s was a tough time to be growing up Asian American and brown especially in communities in the Midwest, where there just weren't a lot of us. But I think that that experience, that struggle, that like sense of always of reckoning my identity, you know, is really what built, you know, the resiliency that I kind of hold so near and dear and that I try to teach, you know, my own children. One of the things that when we were doing our research, you just mentioned it, but your first protest march was at age 13 and the prejudice reduction interested students movement. And so how, like, how did this come about? I mean, obviously you were better at making companies, right? (laughs) I love it. Well, it came about because, you know, pretty much the time I was in eighth grade, I was really struggling with being Indian and being Brown. You know, I wasn't comfortable, you know, you know, being a Hindu. I wasn't comfortable eating, you know, roti and curry, you know, at night. I wasn't comfortable with the fact that I had a name that nobody could pronounce, you know. And so I was really struggling and fighting my identity. Mm-hmm. And on the last day of eighth grade, I remember this girl called me a haji. Haji was basically a derogatory name for, you know, a brown person. And instead of getting on the bus, How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip, Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. I agreed to, you know, meet her in the backyard, you know, back schoolyard for a fight. And I got, basically got beat up terribly and had to go to like my, you know, eighth grade graduation with like a black eye. But that experience made me realize like, I'm not white. Like I'm never going to be white and I can't hide from who I am. And if I live in a community that is not going to accept me, I need to work to get them to accept me and people like me. And so when I got to ninth grade, I, I started a group called the uh, PRISM, the Prejudice Reduction Interested Students Movement. And it's kind of wild. 
uh, to think about, you know, but what we did, we organized, you know, essentially a school assembly where all the people of color would come up and people could ask questions. You know, I'd go up there and people would be like, so are Indians born with a, you know, a red dot on their heads? Do you bathe in curry? You know, do you pray to a cat? Like, I mean, crazy, crazy things. Yeah, but-, but in my mind, I was doing, you know, prejudice reduction. You know, like I was, you know, I was, that was the, in the eighties, in the right. It was, it was like a different approach that you had to ending racism, I guess. And so, you know, I put myself on the firing squad really to ask those questions and stand up in front of folks and like try to, again, build bridges, I guess. Right. And that was kind of the beginning of my activism and of my advocacy, you know, and of being, you know, a movement builder. How did your parents view that? Gosh, you know, my parents were so busy working. I think, I don't think they really understood what I was doing, (laughs) you know, at all. I, my parents, you know, and I say this with love, but they never, it was, they were just so tired and so mm-hmm. busy. When I got in that fight, I remember them just being mad at me. They didn't call the police. You know, they didn't call the school. Mm-hmm. They were just like, why didn't you run away? And so, you know, so much of like, for them, it was about assimilation, right? So mm-hmm. it was about shrinking yourself and not calling attention to yourself. And this was the tax that you paid to be in this country. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, years later, of course, my parents are, my father in particular is very proud of what I do. And, you know, but I, I, you know, there's so much that they didn't fight. You know, I, I remember this one day, Kara, um, you know, our house had been spray painted, you know, with the words, go back to your own country. And my father was, you know, up in the morning and he had this, like, you know, thing of Clorox and he was just cleaning the side of the house. And I, I actually, he was like humming to himself. And I remember watching him and saying to myself, like, I will never be you. Like, I will never be quiet. And like, for me, it was just this, this sense of like, I had to fight against, you know, the outrage. I had to fight against, you know, the injustice. Of course, for them, it was, that was not how they approached it. And so we had very different strategies. And so, I mean, to this day, again, I think my mother is very nervous when I put myself out there, you know, very nervous when you stand up and fight, you know, because that's not how they were raised. Right. Right. And like you said, assimilation was more important, but I think it's, it's so interesting and kind of hearing from people who are the, you know, the offspring of immigrants. And I think your story is very, very common. And I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see now your offspring, right? And, and being able to take your road and then also your parents' road and start to look at all, all of that. And I mean, I hear many stories, especially some of my kids' uh, friends are, are immigrants and, um, or they are the children of immigrants. And it's, uh, it, it's really interesting because you can see that they are different, that they are going to do a different path. And it's um, anyway, it's really inspiring and also very, very interesting and maybe even somewhat historic as like as you look back on on children of other immigrants. So that was the yeah. key thing that when I was reading that research, really interesting. So you went on, uh, you went to law, law school, Yale Law School, uh, not too shabby for a kid who's doing protests in, in high school. And tell me a little bit about what did you want to do with your law degree? So I saw uh, this movie, The Accused, and Kelly McGillis. I remember it. Remember that movie? Yeah. That's when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. 
because I was like, oh, that's how you fight for justice. You go to law school, you become a lawyer. And I was obsessed with going to Yale Law School because I made my dad take me to the library and look up, you know, what the best law school was. Because again, in my mind, like as somebody from a working class family, if I was going to like really be taken seriously, then I had to go to the best. So I was obsessed with going to Yale. I applied over and over and over, got rejected and rejected and rejected. I think on the third try, you know, I finally got waitlisted to get in or, you know, and so I finally got, I finally get in, you know, I go to law school and I'm thinking that I'm going to go work at the DOJ and then George Bush wins. So I guess like I'm not working at the DOJ (laughs) and I'm $300,000 in student loan debt. And so I naively thought I'd go get a job at one of those white shoe law firms in New York city. Right. Because that's where every Midwestern girl goes like New York. And I thought I'd pay off my student loans in like a year or two. And that didn't happen. And 10 years later, almost, I found myself like in a life I didn't want in a job I hated. And I kept thinking like, is this it? Like, is this it? And again, I think, you know, for me, I had a very, when, when I look back on it now, I had a very clear path. I, I pretty much was doing the same thing from the time I was 13, you know, to the time I graduated law school. And then when I, when I graduated law school with all that debt, that's when I started working in the private sector and I became very lost in terms mm-hmm. of like, professionally, I wasn't doing what I was meant to be doing. You know, even though I was doing it, you know, I would say like my side hustle, you know, I was working on campaigns, I was organizing, I was helping immigrants with pro bono work, but like on a day to day, I was at very lost and very off. And what kind of law were you, what kind of law were you practicing? You know, I was working as a corporate lawyer and then I worked in, you know, in a, in a, in a hedge fund. I mean, it was like all, I mean, I remember sitting there in 2008 happened and like on a trading floor and like watching the world. And I'm like, why am I here? Like how, where am I, why am I here? How did I get here? And, and I, I I talk about this a lot because I think that like people who come from working class families, especially people who are the daughters of immigrants, for me, you don't get to have choices. You know, I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have people paying off my loans. I didn't get to go to the ACLU right after school, which is, you know, what I wanted to do because, you know, I was helping my parents pay for their mortgage. Yeah. You know, I remember when my, I got my first check from Davis Polk and Wardwell, like my dad framed it because he had never seen so much money before. So like you said, with your, the, you know, the, the friends that you have that are, that are immigrants or the daughter of the children of immigrants, it's like, there's a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. you know? Um, to do what you, your parents want you to do rather than what you know you want to do. Yeah, but I love the fact that you actually went and tried something. Sometimes I, I say that, you know, nothing was ever a waste of time because you learned what you were ultimately meant to do, right? And I think that that was kind of, you know, the next thing that I saw in your background. So you, uh, you ran for Congress next. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you decide to do that? Well, I, I got obsessed working in politics. I worked for Bill Clinton's 92 campaign and I mm-hmm. love politics. That's when I met Hillary. I just, you know, again, I would, like I said, I organized marches. I was, I was an organizer. And so for me, and I was one of, I was, you know, in my generation, like the, you know, the ultimate democracy or the ultimate, it was like 1950s, John F. K. You can make a difference. And like politicians were the ones that were going to save us. They were, if you mm-hmm. wanted to make change, you wanted to be a change maker. You ran for office. 
And so I always mm-hmm. knew that it was something that I wanted to do. I just didn't know how. And, mm-hmm. you know, I found myself again, like in this job that I hated, I decided I'm going to quit. And I decided I'm to run for Congress. And I naively thought that I could like meet every voter, shake every hand. And at this point, I'm in- involved in politics. You know, I've, um, you know, raised money for, you know, John Kerry to help him. I've been organizing the South Asian and organizing young people for the DNC. So like, I'm in the mix but I have no idea how to run a campaign. And at that point, when I decided to run, I think I'm running for an open seat that does not become open, that's not ever opened. And so I find myself running against, you know, an 18 year incumbent in a democratic primary. And, you know, I basically did what AOC did, except 10 years earlier. But when I did it, it was insane. No, there's not one democratic primary that entire year. Like now this year, there's like 50, you know, it's like not actually yeah. a big deal anymore. But back then it was like, an insane thing to do. And I just, I really didn't know any better. Uh, and I had mm-hmm. the best, the best 10 months of my campaign life ever. What did you learn during that time? You know, I learned how to start something from scratch. Like I never, mm-hmm. I didn't know, I had never raised money before for myself. I had mm-hmm. never built a campaign or built a team. You know, I had never gone into rooms like senior centers and people who I didn't know and like had to make the case about me and why. You know, yeah. I had never been on television before. And my first interview was on that. Chris Matthews. Like everything <laughs> I did, I had never, so I was perpetually in fear, but in excitement, right? I love and it. It was kind of this amazing experience of just being thrown into the deep end. And the thing was, is that because I was this outsider, no one was allowed to work for me. So I got these kind of, you know, ragtag young people that were just excited. And we just figured it out. Everything mm-hmm. we did was scrappy, you know, and we just kind of figured out. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a good why it's like my 2010 congressional campaign is one of the most, my fondest memories, because it's, it's like, it's like, you know, when you build something for the first time and you don't know, I mean, it's different when you and I build something now, right? I can pick up the phone and call people. I have resources. I know how to do it. Now it's like my fourth or fifth thing I've built. But the first time you build something, it's really like, like you're really just in like that fear and that excitement of that fear. It's just, is awesome. Well, and then you look back and appreciate even what you learned along the way too. And to your point, I think it's a very different story if if you're handed a bunch of contacts, if you're handed like, this is what you need to go do. And uh, I mean, it's just so admirable that, to see that you did what what you did there. So that, so that led you to the next, I mean, really where, I mean, it, in so many ways, people got to hear more about Reshma and like really taking a position and going and supporting people and, and sharing a lot more about here's, you know, what I think we need to be doing. So girls who code, how did you come up with this idea? Yeah. So I run this race, I lose spectacularly, but I realized like failure doesn't break me. And I also realized like, I'm, I'm not going back to that corporate job, right? Like I'm already broke. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I've already failed. Like every, you know, the entire Democratic party, like, you know, is pissed at me. So I got, what do I want to do? And I think was a little emboldened, like, all right, if you're not going to elect me, then like, I'm going to show you that I can make change. And so Mm -hmm. I started like really thinking about, all right, in the past 10 months, what are all the things that I saw that were problems in society that like, I think I want to try to solve. 
And I kept mm-hmm. thinking about these classrooms of boys. So, you know, when you run for office, you go to schools and I would go into schools and I would in particular go into public housing projects, you know, and in the private school, there'd be lines and lines of boys, privileged boys, you know, learning how to code, not a girl in sight and not a person of color in sight. And I, when I'd go into public housing, you know, there'd be like one computer in the basement of Bishop Taylor's church. You know, there was no access, no opportunity. And so that was the thing that I kept thinking about. And I was like, why is that? What? Because at the same time in 2010, it was the rise of Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram. All of these technology companies were, again, their first consu- first customers were girls, but they were all built by men, right? And so because I wasn't a coder, because I wasn't a computer scientist, because I wasn't, I didn't understand it. I was like, oh, why? Why aren't there girls here? And so I approached it as just, again, a problem that I was passionate about. And the reason why I think I was so passionate about it was the money that you could make. Because again, mm-hmm. I was the daughter of refugees. I had a job at Baskin Robbins since I was 12 years old. Like, and to me, the idea of being able to start, the, the idea that black and white girls, rich and you know, poor girls are all starting from the same baseline of having zero knowledge that maybe this is the way that we could equalize the country. Mm-hmm. And equalize opportunity. And so that was why I decided that Girls Who Code was going to be the problem that I wanted to solve. Mm-hmm. And what did you, what do you think you learned? Like once you started this entire movement, I mean, how many, like, how many girls did this impact and all of that? 450,000 girls, 450,000 girls who taught. We have 10,000 girls who code clubs across the country. We've reached half a billion people through our work, you know, through our campaign. I mean, that is just unbelievable. Yeah. That was started by Reshma. I mean, (laughs) right? Like, you ever just sit there and just go, this is crazy? Yeah. Yes and no. I don't let myself. I think it's like, I think it's really important to like, I'm never satisfied. Like, I'm still pissed that Mm -hmm. like, you know, 50% of the people working at Google are not women and people of color. So I'm, I'm not done yet. But yes, I think the thing is, I feel very blessed to work for some work on something that I feel very inspired by. I feel very blessed that I get to be in the income. There's something about girls that moves me, that gives me hope. And, you know, in a moment where it feels like the world is so messed up, you know, to know that there are like these teenage girls thinking about finding a solution to COVID, cancer, and climate, you know, as outraged as we are about issues that are thinking about how to fix them. Like mm-hmm. that, that gives me hope and fires me up and make, that's get, that gives me pride, right? That like, I had, I played a piece of that, but you know, what I learned was one, I learned that you don't have to be an expert, right? To build a company. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of us, we think that if we don't, if we're not an expert in biotech, or if we're not an expert in mental health, or if we're not an ex- expert in, you know, soft drinks, like I can't start a company to do that. And mm-hmm. that's just false. Like you actually just have to have passion. You can mm-hmm. build the expertise. And so that's the one thing, you know, secondly, it's like, you know, you said, I didn't do this. I had a whole team of people who were smarter than me, better than me. And I mean, I, I, I built a team, but like, I always found people who like, we're amazing in marketing or amazing in programs, amazing in fundraising, amazing in there. And, and we came together. And, you know, the third thing is, is like, I always told the truth, you know, even at the cost of my own, you know, I, I you know, throughout the ten, past 10 years, you know, I, I definitely pissed a lot of people off because I told the truth. 
you know, whether it was to President Trump, whether it was to a technology company, right? And I think all, like there's no point of building something. There's no point of accumulating power if you don't use it for good. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and uh, you live in a country that, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it's not such a good thing, but freedom of speech, right? And, and so I think just the, the idea that you were able to start it from scratch and have the impact that you did and help so many uh, girls along the way is just is really, really powerful. And I think also raising awareness for the companies to do better. Right. And I I think it's not just about a hands on teaching um, and getting girls to actually go and learn the skill. It's also you put a lot of pressure on uh, these companies just by doing what you were doing to raise awareness that, yeah, there's definitely women out there that would be more than happy to come into your training program. So I absolutely love that. You talked in your book, which was amazing, Brave Not Perfect, uh, about just the bravery mindset. Do you want to just give a quick snapshot on that? Yeah. I mean, look, I think as, 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 as girls were raised to be perfect, you know, we're, we're taught to like, don't get your dress dirty, you know, don't spend time on the sunset, like be careful. And, you know, oftentimes when we're raised, it starts with physical protection, right? We, we don't want girls to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And then it extends to emotional protection. So when we go to a gymnastics class and we can't do a cartwheel and we come home crying, what do our parents say? It's okay, honey. You don't have to go to gymnastics anymore. You can go to soccer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we start getting addicted to perfection. We start getting, you know, we start like learning how to give up before we even try. So, you know, in school, if we declare economics as a major and we get a B in a single class, we'll drop out. Whereas men are like, I got a D. I'm running for president, right? Different different, you know, implications for that. You know, we see it in mental health, you know, young women suffer from, you know, anxiety and depression at twice, or even you saw this in the Instagram study, Mm -hmm. like they knew that they knew that if they built a like button, that they would hook girls and it would destroy their self-esteem because we were so addicted and socialized to being perfect. Right. And, you know, finally you see it in leadership. It's like, you know, women won't apply for a job unless they meet a hundred percent of the qualifications. And so I believe the antidote to perfectionism is bravery because bravery Mm -hmm. teaches you how to be imperfect. And so part of what I've been doing over the past couple of years, and I think what's so awesome about coding is coding helps build that bravery mindset because, you know, when you learn how to code, it's like the annoying semicolon is in the wrong place and you have to iterate. You have to do it again and again and again. You can't give up. And that's bravery. And, and so it's like really about how do you build that bravery muscle? How do you build, you know, how do you teach women and young women, you know, to be brave, you know, in, in, in not like saving a baby from the burning building, but brave enough to raise your hand in a meeting when you don't know exactly what you're going to say. Brave enough when you're walking down the street and someone bumps into you that you don't say, oh, I'm sorry you know, brave, brave enough to like fake it till you make it and raise your hand for that promotion, even though you don't feel like you're fully qualified, you know, the bravery to feel like you belong and that you are good enough. You know, that's the kind of bravery that we have to teach. Well, and uh, the name of my book that came out, I can't even believe a year ago now is called Undaunted. And that's a lot of what I talk about that it's never going to be perfect. But I think more than anything, you have to just go out and try. So I, I absolutely um, 
definitely follow that and try and teach that too. And uh, so I, I really, really love that. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Reshma, if you haven't heard her TED Talk, it's absolutely amazing. And you did such a terrific job on that as well. And over 5 million views now. I mean, it's just like, that's just wild. It's like I my dad repeat, repeat. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. That's so great. So, and your newest project and, and hopefully everybody is, uh, is aware of the Marshall Plan for Moms that Reshma started. So it's a movement asking lawmakers to step up for mothers in a way we've never done before. And obviously during the pandemic, there's so many situations where I, I hate hearing when people are talking about, you know, well, women are opting out of, of the workplace. They didn't opt out. Uh, they made less money. It, it made, uh, you know, definitely made sense for some people while their kids are homeschooled to be staying home. But the using the term opt is, is, uh, is a stretch in my mind. So talk to us a little bit about this, this entire movement, Rashman, what, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, we've lost over the pandemic, you know, almost 3 million women from the workforce. So when we started COVID-19 care, 51% of the labor force was female. And now our numbers are back where they were in 1989. So it took nine months to lose all of those jobs. And like you said, women weren't opting out. You know, the reason why women left the workforce, you know, in COVID is because when American women do 86% of the domestic labor at home. So when schools mm -hmm. shut down, we were the ones that were homeschooling. As we were stuck in our houses, we were doing the laundry and doing the cooking and doing the cleaning. And, you know, all the while we were maintaining our full-time job. And, you know, when schools shut down, you know, for, for many working women, schools have operated you know, as childcare. And so at that time, schools were not open. The vast majority of daycare centers were shut. You couldn't call in your parents to take care of your children because we had a global pandemic. And so women started, you know, leaving their jobs, moving into their cars, moving in with their parents, taking the third shift, right? Downsizing and diminishing, you know, their dreams or hopes and their potential. And for me, you know, when I saw this happen, you know, last September, and you looked at the December jobs report where all the jobs lost were women's jobs and mostly women of color, you know, I said to myself, Carol, like, where's the plan? Like, you can't mm -hmm. lose this many jobs without having a plan. And the reason why I think it really resonated with me was that, you know, at Girls Who Code, the problem that I was trying to get solved was gender parity in the technology workforce. And what people don't know is that in 1995, 40% of the technology workforce was female. And today that number is like 22%. But wow. it took so, after all this intervention, all this work, all this conversation, all of this, we are still fighting our way to get back to 40. So the fact that we lost 3 million jobs back at we were, we were in 1989, it's not an on and off switch. You literally have to have a women's job czar in every single city, state, and country who is having their KPIs and saying, how many jobs lost? What are the levers? And how do we get back? And so the Marshall Member Moms is really, you know, an analysis of like, or like, you know, an idea of like, here are the five things you got to do, right? You got to give cash payments to mothers. You got to pass paid leave. You got to make childcare affordable. You got to open up the school safely. And you got to retrain all the moms who lost their jobs because they were in jobs that weren't pandemic proof. 
Uh, and since then, we've just really been pushing government, pushing the corporate sector, you know, pushing culture to really make sure that we can shorten the economic recovery for women and make sure that women are able to get back into the workforce and make workplaces finally work for moms because they never did before. Oh, it's so incredible. And you launched it, was it the beginning of the summer? When you well, first- I wrote my first op-ed in December of 2020. And okay. so this is basically what I've been doing. And I didn't, you know, it's funny, Kara, like I was the one who was like pull, telling girls to get the corner office. I never thought that I'd be fighting for motherhood. I never thought that motherhood would be so controversial that we would have mm-hmm. such, you know, opinions on whether you're ever, you know, whether you should even get paid leave or childcare, whether that, because you chose to have a child. So why do you get anything? But, you know, since the summer of 2020, this is what I've been working on. We've gotten two bills introduced, you know what I mean? In, in Congress, a handful of bills introduced in the state. We released a playbook, you know, for companies that have guided them on what they need to do to get root out the motherhood penalty. You know, I spoke to, you know, all the finance ministers at the World Bank, a week and a half ago about their ideas. Because again, what's happening in the United States is happening across the globe and towards of the shrinking of women participating, you know, in the labor force. You know, we're in a critical week this week, you know, past it, you know, trying to see what we're going to get past and Biden's bill. But, you know, we just don't have, you know, Marshall Labor Moms, what we're building is a movement of moms for moms issues. You know, we have movements of moms fighting for against gun, you know, against, you know, guns, moms fighting, you know, against drunk driving moms, you know, moms fighting for the climate, right? You know, for climate change. But we don't have a movement of moms fighting for moms because we're so true. Society tells us we're supposed to be martyrs and that we don't get nice things. Mm -hmm. No, it's so it's so true. And how do people learn more about? Yeah, go to marshallplanformoms.com, sign our petition, sign up for our list you know, we are going to be, we've been, you know, working extensively and like building this movement and making change, you know, and, you know, the, the place that we're really turning to now is the private sector, you know, more companies care, freeze your, will pay for freezing your eggs than will subsidize your childcare, you know, mo- which is crazy, right? Most families in America pay more for childcare than they pay for their mortgage. It's too expensive. You know, I was a latchkey kid because my dad couldn't afford the $50 a week for, for childcare. And, you know, we would never get rid of public education, but all studies show that zero through four is, a, is critical. So we should be f- subsidizing childcare. We should, childcare should be affordable. You know, it should be provided. And if the government's not going to do it, you know, I definitely think the private sector has to take, you know, take the lead. You know, mm-hmm. I think the second thing is really, you know, shifting the conversation. You know, we've read and, you know, so many HBR articles on like getting a mentor, getting a sponsor, you know, how to get the corner office. Well, you know, all that is just a lie. We had no shot mm-hmm. at getting the corner office if we were still doing 86% of domestic labor at home. And so where's the movement to get to 50-50? You know, how are we pushing, you know, our partners to do more? How are we helping single moms? You know, in Philippines, they have PSAs about how laundry is love. But, you know, globally, they're really focused on figuring and shifting the gender ratio of work done at home. Uh, and we so too, in this country have to turn to that conversation. Yeah, it's so true. So, well, thank you for doing everything that you're doing because it's it's incredibly brave and uh, and like... You've talked about before that things don't have to be perfect. You have to start, right? And you have to keep moving. And that's exactly what you're doing and doing it 
um, for to help women and to help mothers and to help children, right? Create a better life. So I really, really appreciate everything that you're doing. And and I, I know it's it's not easy. You're a mother yourself and have got two young kids. And and uh so I'm sure it's it's a uh, it's taking on a lot, but I really, really appreciate everything that you're doing. So uh, Marshall Plan for Mothers and or for Moms, Marshall Plan for Moms. And uh, where else do people find out more about Reshma? Yeah, at reshmasjani.com. Follow me on Twitter at reshmasjani or on Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, start building this movement. Like my hope is to take moms from, from you know, from reach to power. And it's not just moms. You know, it's, it's, it's dads, it's men and women who don't have children yet. You know, 86% of women in the workforce by the time they're 40 will be a mother. So at some point, if you choose, you will be one. And I think the thing is right now, I, I, a lot of the young women in my life, they don't want to have kids because it's too expensive. It's too hard. It's like, you're not respected. It's not dignified. And you know, that needs to change. I always say like, you know, Kara, it took me 10 years to have, you know, fertility treatments to have my first and second child. And the title that I am the most proud of is mother, Mm -hmm. especially after the past two years, you know, and, you know, mothers are the bedrock of our country in our society. And so I think we have a moment to really change things. And I hope people really join this fight. I love it. Well, and like you said, my husband always says that if, if women don't involve men in the process, then they can't be a part of it. And they can't stand up and support women and mothers. So I I want to see some men standing up for this as well because it's uh it's an important important initiative. So thank you so much, Rushma, and thank you everybody for listening. We're here every Monday and Wednesday talking with amazing people like Rushma about their companies, their journeys, their movements, and. Hopefully it will inspire you to go out and do great things as well or give you ideas with something great that you're working on now. And as I briefly mentioned, I have a book called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters. Hopefully you'll pick up a copy of that. And I'm all over social at Kara Golden with an I. And uh, yeah, so subscribe to the Kara Golden Show and come listen and hopefully you'll reach out and Tell me what you think. So thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Rashma. Thanks, Kara. Bye. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Golden.